Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. Today, we are going to talk to someone who's got a harrowing story about survivorship and thriving thereafterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared in our podcast can be graphic in nature. We do recommend you review the details of our podcast before tuning in. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. So I want to welcome everyone back to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Sayed. Today we have Laura Tucker, and I'm actually going to give Laura the opportunity to introduce herself because we're so excited that Laura was able to join us today and share with you her story of what she's been through. Before we start, as always, I do want to warn anybody listening to this podcast that we do discuss adult content. So please don't listen to our podcast with your little kids. And please be aware that some of the things that we discuss are very much deep, traumatic, and can be events that bring up memories of your own events. So we do want to make sure that you're aware of this before you start listening to our podcast. And without further ado, we present Laura. Laura, can you go ahead and explain kind of what you do today and just a little bit of a, of a quick bio on uh, who you are? Sure. And first, before I do that, thank you so much, Amy, for having me on. It's, it's such a, it's a privilege to come and share this space with you. And, and the people who listen to Calm After the Storm. So my name is Laura Tucker. And the best way for me to begin is, is with the present and then maybe take people back a little bit. But currently, I'm a leadership coach and I host a podcast called Free Your Inner Guru. Mm-hmm. And Free Your Inner Guru is very much a byproduct or part of the healing journey of, of my story. And, and it played a very important role in finding my voice after years of struggle in that area, which if you knew me as a child and knew me as, um, as a young professional, you would never imagine that I would have any trouble having a voice on anything. Yeah. And yeah, so that was, uh, so that kind of frames up what I do right now, Mm -hmm. um, to give a bit of an overall view my first career, I was a primary school teacher and then a high school teacher. And then in 1997, I left teaching for a career in the private sector, which went from a training position into sales. And then eventually I started my own consulting company. Very and so, cool. yeah. And so back in the, in the recession of 08 and 09, I was working as an automotive consultant, um, helping businesses grow and weather the the great recession although we didn't know at the time that's what it would be called yeah and in the interim i've put it all together into coaching 
Awesome. So we're, we're going to get right into this uh, today, Laura, because I really, I can't wait for us to get to really, you know, why you're here today and what what your story looks like. So um, we are going to start by just talking a little bit about what your childhood was, was like and, you know, uh, the types of experiences you had growing up at home. I'm the eldest of four children. I grew up in a suburb of Toronto called Scarborough. It's in the East End. So I'm an East End girl for anyone from Toronto listening. Yeah. And, and I have three younger brothers. So I was the, the eldest or I am the eldest by four years. Mm -hmm. And then my three brothers, Stephen, Paul, Michael, they came along after me. And I was very much a very quiet, responsible child. And I think that was both because of position in the family and gender, like the only girl and yeah. the eldest yeah. really yeah. sets up that little that little leadership dynamic. Oh, for sure, Laura. Like I'm the eldest of three girls. And I it's whenever I speak to people who are the eldest, these types of things resonate with me because being the eldest, I mean, the responsibility really is on you. You're the example for your siblings and you know, you're expected to take care of them and help out with the parenting. Yeah. And you're like the sole focus in the beginning. Yes. And then these other human beings come along and that is no longer the case. And you kind of have to figure out how to, what your position is. And, and in, in my case, my, um, my brothers are very active, um, little boys and very athletic. So through them and through, well, generations of sport loving, we were an active family and, uh, but whenever I could, if I wasn't engaged with other people, my nose was, was in a book. I yeah. was a huge reader and, uh, and that remains true to this day. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you feel like sometimes when you look back because you had all this responsibility and because you were kind of thrown into that, I mean, I know it's always a combination of nurture and nature, but, um, did you ever feel like it really, really forced you to, to take responsibility for yourself perhaps, and like, look at yourself sometimes from the outside in and have expectations on yourself? There's no other way to answer that, but yes, I mean, it is, when I was young, it was also in the days where both parents were going to work for the first time. Yeah. So you think of the generational changes in the last two or three generations. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to say I'm in my early fifties now. So my yeah. mom just turned 80. This is, we're talking about the 1960s, the 1970s. So my mom went back to work after my Young, next younger brother was was born, mm-hmm. and then as we grew up, um, I had to. I had a lot of chores, just like any kid. You know, we were latchkey kids. Yeah, and I don't say that as a criticism. We just were. You got home after school, you let yourself in. You, you know, I had to. You know, take. I was the babysitter. You know, I oh, babysat for, sure. for yeah. other people. Oh, I, I know. I, I totally. That's exactly the put the dinner on my whole life. Bit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, right? We're like 11, 12 years old doing the work of like, I couldn't even imagine my kids now doing the stuff that I did when I was uh, 11 and 12 years old back then. Well, and it's funny to think about it because I'm I'm actually in the process of writing a memoir. And and so I'm looking back on these things in my own way. A lot yeah. of this 2020 time has been spent strangely in the past. And, um, and 
what I do recall was like, as I got a little bit older, I became extremely rebellious, but rebellious in the way that was more verbally rebellious. And I liked to explore new things and, and um, which included, you know, I smoking and drinking and, and, and so here at home, I had all these responsibilities and then out of the home, I was a little bit of a shit disturber, Mm -hmm. but always on the quiet side. And, you know, I could shock people because, um, and I was just thinking about this very recently, but as we were kind of going down that path, I would surprise people because I had quite a sharp tongue and, you know, which included all kinds of, you know, four letter words as well. And I would get called, you know, I would shock people with language and use of words. And, and that taught me that you can have an impact with what you say to people and how you say it, which of course, you know, being the only girl, it's not like we weren't in a violent household by any stretch of the imagination, but as my brothers got bigger and older, um, as the, the lone girl in that dynamic, I had to learn how to be able to steer the ship that I was steering with words, not yeah. with physicality. Yeah. And you can see that showing up time and time again in what I've chosen to do. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's one of those things, I think when you're younger and this is what I'm hearing in between the lines is you start to learn, right. The, like what, what your superpowers are and perhaps you learned that, Hey, I can't like get down and dirty with these guys, perhaps how they are with each other. Right. Because I know I, I have nephews, I have sons and not to, not to say that it's like, you know, genders um, have to act a certain way, but the, but the, the reality is that, you know, the way that my nephews acted at three, my daughter doesn't act as physically aggressive or using her motor skills, you know, in the same way. So I can just imagine you realizing all of a sudden that, hey, you know what, I can say certain things to these guys, even just in the house, and get them to feel something or to notice me or to, you know, their ears perk up. And then that becomes kind of how you develop part of your superpower. And I think reading a lot too helps with that, right? Because I've noticed reading helps me with language. It helps my children learn language. And when you're an avid reader, it really plays into who you become. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to paint a picture for for all the listeners in terms of like where you came from and perhaps your thought processes as you were growing up because you know we all know that our childhoods have a huge effect on who we become as adults. So I always like to paint a picture and give a feel to people of like the types of things maybe perhaps you witnessed or perhaps the relationships that you had that probably set you up for um, for life later on, right? So let's fast forward a little bit. You've gone through high school now. You're probably hitting your 20s. What did your 20s look like? My 20s were, you know, I was very, um, I was on that path to, of academia. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, it, there was never any doubt whether or not I would go to university or college. That's, that's what we, you know, do in our family. Yeah. And I was, 
I, so I went to University of Toronto and I had a really hard time deciding what I was going to do um, post-grad. And in the meantime, my parents had, they had separated. They separated just around the time of my first year in university. I was still living at home. Mm-hmm. I had a boyfriend from the age of 16 all yeah. the way into my mid-20s. And uh, so I was navigating the academic world with the home front and then also um, having to to work, I moved out in second year, realizing the commute was too much and the challenges at home were were hard to maintain the full time university student level. So I moved downtown, and then I went to work in the bars where I I worked at this fun place called Studebakers, mm-hmm. where um, you know so by day I was a student, by night I was um, a waitress. And during that time, that was a very interesting time in my life because I worked in a number of the bars where you had to wear a tight black skirt and black pumps and a white shirt. It was all about how short the skirt was and how high the heels were. And I just couldn't do it. It hurt way too much. I guess I'm practical in nature. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't want anything to do with that. So as a last ditch effort, I went and I applied at this place called Studebakers where the waitresses wore cheerleader outfits and running shoes. And you had to do these dances. Um, They had this thing called showtime. Oh gosh. The guys (laughs) and the girls had to go out on the dance floor and, and put on this performance. And so I was, I think I really came out of my shell in those days from being that bookish quiet leader who could use a sharp tongue Mm -hmm. to, you know, to, expressing myself in in other ways and uh and it was a lot of fun but also a lot of work yeah yeah that's amazing so so walk me through kind of like your probably around this age or you can correct me if i'm wrong you start to realize right like growing as a person we start to look at look within ourselves and look at ways to to um i guess augment our life experience um, often using self-help techniques, that sort of thing, right? So walk me through kind of like your thought process between about that time you going into your career as a teacher and then, you know, onwards. How are you using self-help back then? So I don't recall that self-help as we know it now was on my radar okay. in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. More what was happening was um, I was struggling with um, my sort of emotional well-being. My parents had separated. Um, I was in school and things just weren't feeling, I wasn't feeling right. And you know, in in my family, there's there's a lineage of depression, and um, I want to say anxiety, but but and some alcoholism, and it was around my second year after I moved out that I made my first attempt to speak to somebody about how I was feeling, mm-hmm. because nothing was overtly wrong, but I was very very stressed out. And feeling a way that I hadn't felt before. So I went to the student services um, 
and booked an appointment with what I was familiar with. Um, and that was, I, I wanted to see a counselor and I ended up getting booked to see a psychiatrist. So, so can you just describe to me, you're saying a lot about like you weren't feeling right. Can you give me an example of how you realized you weren't feeling right? Like what seemed different? Everything was, it was heavy. And I think I was taking a lot on in terms of responsibility for how things were going at home. And I felt very, very guilty for moving out, even though I knew it was the right thing to do for me. Yeah. And it was the beginning of just that unfamiliar territory where you're, I was away from my long-term friends. And now I would describe it as I was feeling very disconnected. Okay. I, I did not have those words back then. And so I made that first attempt to talk to somebody about how I was feeling and he, what happened, which was a shock to me is he immediately pulled out um, a prescription pad and started writing me a prescription. He didn't want to talk about anything. Really? Yeah. He he was an, an older man. He was not interested in hearing how I was feeling and said, this'll help. And I just looked at him and I was, I was shocked and I was, I was shocked and I, I turned and moved in the other direction. I, I didn't take the prescription and I, and I walked out and that Mm. this was clearly not what I was going, going to help at that time. And so it wasn't for another number of years before I made another attempt. I see. And so when you went originally for the help, they referred you to a psychiatrist when perhaps you probably needed like a counselor or, or, or a psychologist, right? And there's a difference between the two. And that's something that I try to explain to people often um, because of my own background in mental health. But just very quickly, psychiatrists are doctors and that's really what they're there for is to diagnose you with something and give you the medication. If you want to talk and you want to do any type of behavioral therapy, which is oftentimes like what, what, people get referred to now before they see the psychiatrist, then you're seeing somebody who's a psychologist or a psychotherapist or a counselor, right? Somebody who's going to be able to talk you through exactly what's going on and see if like maybe we can make some changes in your day-to-day before you have to go down a path of diagnoses, right? So that's really interesting. And I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah. In hindsight, it's really unfortunate because there was an early opportunity that was missed. Yeah. And whether it was, you know, one of the things I've learned about myself since is I'm very verbal, but I'm not one of my weaknesses is expressing my emotion. Like to put words to emotion is a challenge. I really have to take my time with it. And I didn't have the tools as, as effective as, as I was in so many other ways. I think what it did was mask where the challenge was. I see. Yeah. And that happens to a lot of people. You're not alone, right? I mean, I think generally we're all kind of taught, right, to suck it up and deal with it and just move on your way. And, you know, uh, the validity to our feelings sometimes gets taken away from us at at a young age. So you end up having to navigate that later on. And what did that look like for you? Well, I think, you know, what you're making me think of is that it's this juxtaposition between 
being able to be high functioning and still very miserable or depressed. Yeah. And that's the, that's the masking effect. Like how could she be feeling this way? Look at her, look how well she's doing and being evaluated um, by the external when on the inside, it was this kind of constant gnawing, grinding feeling that just never lifted. So how did that go for you? Like, what did that look like for you in your relationships? When did you start to realize that this is happening and I have to do something about it? Or did you just continue high functioning and keep moving forward? I I continued for some time, Mm -hmm. um, moving forward. Um, I would call it powering through now. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, you know, kind of doing the things that you're doing in the meantime, what was happening, like I, I ended my, um, first long relationship when I was 25, Mm. kind of defaulted into doing my bachelor of education and becoming a teacher when I figured out that I I wasn't able to keep up full-time coursework. Okay. So I, I backed off on how many courses I was doing in order to be able to carry the load. And so I went into teaching and it was a good, it was a great fit for me as that sort of eldest daughter um, and a daughter of teacher and a family of teachers. Mm -hmm. Teaching is an amazing um, profession. And, uh, and, but every step of the way, I was in a position where things just weren't working out the way they were supposed to. Okay. So you look at what, what is supposed to um, looks like. So yeah. Getting yeah. Married. What does that look like? <laughs> yeah. Supposed to is, you know, is getting hired on full time as a teacher. And there was a surplus of teachers when I got out of school. So, you know, years as a supply list uh, as a supply teacher or mm. substitute teacher, yeah. um, supposed to looks like getting married and having children by a certain age. And that wasn't happening. Okay. And so in these big areas of life, career and, you know, relationships, I wasn't measuring up to my own expectations yes. and I wouldn't say overt expectations, but I think that, you know, there's just certain expectations as a woman ages and, and, you know, ha- had I known like by the time you get to 30 and then 40, that still wasn't really working. Okay. And so I was having a really rough time being in and out of employment as a teacher and started to question whether or not it was for me. Yeah. And that was the first time that I significantly changed my environment. And, and that's when I, I left teaching after just, it, it broke my heart that I could be a wonderful teacher, but it wasn't a merit-based system. Okay. And so I was constantly just floating at that, you know, that low seniority level of not enough teaching jobs and getting temporary contracts, finally being hired on. And then, and and we're talking years here, five, six years of that uncertainty and the stress around that. Yeah. And then when I was 29, I had been, when I turned 29, I had been hired on full time and I got laid off on my 29th birthday. Oh gosh, you poor thing. Right? So, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. 
So it's just like all of this, you know, so much effort, so much heart into everything that I did. And it legitimately wasn't working out the way that I expected. So in hindsight, I want to, I want to just pick your brain for a second. Do you feel that, did you have any role in that? Like, did you feel that maybe your heart wasn't fully in it? Or do you feel like if you were to look back and you were to do it differently, you would be able to see things now more clearly? I think there are times where you can take that kind of sort of personal responsibility. If I was to take responsibility for anything, because I couldn't control the surplus of teachers. Of course. right? It was a very real thing. We can never control what's happening out there in the world. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, like systemically, I didn't have that kind of influence to be able to do that. Had I known that if I had pursued, say, being a high school science teacher as a as a woman, yeah. there would have been more opportunity. Interesting, but, yeah. But you don't know that. You so don't I know. Was, in your 20s and you're in school and you don't have that life experience, how are you supposed to know, right? Yeah, and and now I look at it very differently because it was definitely, I wasn't meant to stay there. Yeah. I think the full career of teaching would have been wonderful. I'd be probably ready to retire by now and the yeah. relative security. Yeah. Um, well, who knows? I'd probably still, I'd probably be quite depressed and feeling unstimulated. <laughs> who knows, right? right? Exactly. Like, like the universe will just decide for you, right? This is not a good fit for you. You're just, you're, you're going into something that maybe, you know, you can make more impact doing something else out there. Right. So, so that's why I found it to be really interesting because I'm listening to you talk your way through this and it sounds like there's something else on the other side and what was on the other side for you? Yeah. So after I realized I just couldn't continue to throw myself at that brick wall anymore, yeah. you know, that's very much um, what it was like. I, uh, I got called back to work in the fall, but over the summer I had start, I had started looking for other employment mm-hmm. and, uh, and one thing led to another. And before that first school year was, was done, um, the job in the private sector came looking for me. And it really was, it was one of those things that, um, I went through the process and I've really adopted this, this approach to things where, I knew it was going to break my heart to leave because I loved the kids and, and loved the work of being a teacher. What I didn't love was being on the picket line or work to rule or all this other stuff that was happening. I had no concept of that. And that's how I learned. I I'm not a union um, employee and, and I went through the process to get that first job one step at a time saying there's no decision to be made until the decision is on until the offer is there until the opportunity is, is yours. So that's how I navigated one step at a time. And then when the offer was made, I knew in my heart, as much as it was very sad for me, I I just had that. It was the initial feelings of what my intuition feels like. Mm -hmm. It was just this gut feeling of you have to do this. You know, teaching is not going anywhere. You have to follow this and see what comes of it. You know, so it was like one big step forward and it took a while to unhook my, my heart. Of course. It's a big change, right? It is. I was very clear on the difference that I was making when I was a teacher, not so much, you know, everything that I do, I have to apply myself fully. And so that became a little less clear in the new environment. 
Interesting. Walk me through, you're still feeling probably quite depressed and this is just becoming again, kind of like your high functioning state of going through this. Walk me through what you went through over the next few years that got you to BC. I started as, as a trainer Mm -hmm. and, you know, after a big move like that, there is, you know, there was relief. There was excitement. I was inspired by it. The newness yeah. And being in that teaching room. adults and not teaching kids, right? That's really the big difference between the two jobs. It really yeah, it really it was. And mm. teaching adults who were much older than me. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, and and I learned that I, I don't have the same patience for adults as I do for kids. <laughs> oh, I hear you. I hear you, sister. That's my that's my family relationship every day in this house. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was good and fine for about 18 months. And then I saw, I I started to, it started to come back. Yeah, You know, I I made, um, I was making some lifestyle changes as well, which, which were, you know, I was taking a little bit better care of my body. And how are you doing that? More through nutrition, because I, I wasn't run as ragged as I was as a teacher. Yeah. The days were pretty structured. Good. There was a fridge right there. And, yeah. and so I was making some changes on that front that were, that were really good. But, but then the, um, there was a weird kind of competition between the, um, the, the co my coworkers and I, and, and it was a dynamic that I, I regretfully became familiar with, which was when you, when you're doing well, sometimes your peers um, don't appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there was a bit of a falling out and I was, and this is when I realized like you've, ma- I've made my big move. This was supposed to make me feel better. Yeah. I'm just as stressed as I ever was. And then all, and then the, I started to feel regret for leaving teaching if this wasn't going to fix anything. And that was all these years later, Um, that was when I, I did go see my doctor and I've just very recently in writing my memoir, come across receipts from those years. And, uh, and that's when I started taking antidepressants to function in the corporate environment. Are are there any times that you, you feel in that moment, like I just need something more or you start to search or walk me through what your thought process was around that time. I think it was in the, I I moved from training into sales because I thought I could have, make a bigger impact in, um, in how the company was doing business. And I learned so much from the adult clients that I had trained and could see that there was an opportunity to perhaps sell in a different way and create different expectations. So I moved into, to sales and then when you're in a sales culture, that's when you really start to be exposed to training, performance training, um, books like, you know, I kind of laugh now, but I think the, the big books at the time were The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And I think I even went and, uh, and read uh, Tony Robbins, the yeah. Awaken the Giant Within. Yeah. And so that's when I, st- as the book person, that's when I started reading in that genre. Very not cool. really connect. Yeah. yeah not really 
connecting with it enough to do anything, but through the sales training, we, we got some exposure to mm. what motivation in a large American company looks like. And, um, and then eventually my time in sales ran its course. I started my own business and this was consulting back to the clients that I had been um, selling to because there was just so much need for better process, better implementation and, and just building the business and turned out that I had a real knack for it. And then in November, 2004, I had, I had been dating um, and nothing had really stuck in all this time, but in November, 2004, uh, somebody who I'd been dating got a job in this place called Kelowna, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd never heard of Kelowna before. It was completely, certainly I'd heard of British Columbia, Yeah, but um, I went on a weekend to go and, and visit him in Kelowna. And that relationship did not last, but I absolutely fell in love with what I saw in Kelowna. Beautiful. And it's just beautiful yeah. there, isn't it? And yeah, it is. And, and so I set my sights on relocating there. So I made a couple of trips on the recommendation of my clients in Toronto. I went out and met um, the people who would become my initial clients. And, you know, at that point in time, there had been a couple of very important life events on the home front um, that really, I could say that I got my first mortality check mm-hmm. and, and my second mortality check. One was in 2002, um, my youngest cousin died in a car accident. Oh, wow. Sorry to hear that. How old, how old was your cousin? He was, I believe he was 21 oh, wow. at the time. So that, that was a huge shock. And for all those years, um, from about 98 to 2002, that's when I was taking the antidepressants to manage myself. And, um, and that day when, when he died, yeah. we drove to um, Ottawa to be with our family. And after he passed in the hospital... It was this beautiful October day and I walked out to my car. I just needed, there were so many people there and I walked out and I sat in my car and I'm looking out. There's a schoolyard just down the road, everything, all these beautiful red and orange leaves everywhere. And just in shock. And it was right in that moment that whether it came from inside of me or from outside of me, I literally heard a voice that said, you need to stop taking those drugs because I didn't feel anything. Oh, like, I, I understood intellectually what was happening, but I was so numbed and muted and just, and again, like further disconnected. And it showed me, Oh, I'm not feeling anything now. So that was um, an important day in any number of ways and, and I literally did wean myself off and decide that I was going to do whatever it took to live a productive, happy life and, and figure out how to do this thing called life. Yeah. And so when I went for whatever, the, it was, a, let's face it, it was a dirty weekend in Kelowna mm-hmm. and, um, 
and saw this beautiful place that had all of these things that I had fallen in love with on all the sales trips that I went on down Mm. to Arizona and California. And I was like, what? I can just move here. I don't have to like marry an American to be in a place as beautiful and arid as this. And so that was a way for me to go out and claim um, a different life in a different place. And in the meantime, my creative passion for outdoor photography had been stirred. Mm -hmm. And I saw like people live in a beautiful place like this in Canada. I want that. Yeah. So, so walk me through the next few years and what they look like. So they were very, very busy years and, you know, setting up a new business, yeah, meeting new friends. Um, I got to Kelowna just as um, real estate prices were starting to skyrocket. And I had seen that in Toronto. I'd always been a renter in Toronto. Yeah. And, and part of that was what informed my my decision to leave was, I don't think I want to work as hard to pay, you know, we'll laugh now, but you know, $600,000 for a townhouse. I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not not willing to do what it takes to like, for what? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as soon as I got to Kelowna and I saw that this beautiful wine region was taking off the economy in Alberta, Mm -hmm. started to learn how things work out there. It's like, Oh gosh, I'm going to miss it again. So I, um, I got a mortgage and all the responsibility scared the crap out of me, Mm -hmm. Um, but worked really hard to establish myself. And those were the days where I was out there from 2005 and in 2007, um, you know, again, I was just repeating the same cycle of dating um, and not working out and, by that point, I was I was 38 when I left here. So now we're pushing on 40 yeah. and all that that means in terms of family. And, and so I was starting to, I was off any medication, but that low grade um, sinking feeling was coming back. Mm-hmm. And it was right at the time that the recession started to kick in. And so work became extremely um, more challenging at the same time. Yeah. And that's when I was um, handed a copy of The Secret by a friend of mine. And um, I took that home and watched it and ended up um, enrolling in a workshop in California to okay. go and learn from one of the teachers in The Secret to see if there was a way and that... I could do this without having, by that point, I was like, I've lived for this amount of time without being on antidepressants. This idea of the law of attraction was, or I didn't even really think of it as the law of attraction. Um, But from my undergrad in psychology, I knew what a self-fulfilling prophecy was. Yes. (laughs) Right. And, and in days where I'm feeling more cynical, um, the law of attraction can look a lot like marketing over top of self-fulfilling prophecies. Like mm. if, if you think this way, it's going to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so that I embarked on a journey that was intended to be um, healing and inspirational. And it was, 
but it also ended in tragedy. Walk me through how you got from attending this seminar in California to finding yourself at a sweat lodge. Like, how did you get from one thing to the other? And what I really want you to focus on and to help all of us understand, because a lot of us, you know, we know about things like the law of attraction and a lot of us hear about, you know, self-help and we read the books and we try to better our lives. And, you know, there's always this push and this pull when it comes to this type of an industry, because of course, our intentions are always in a good place. We want to better ourselves, to better our relationships with others, to better the world, right? To better the universe, whatever it is out there. So our intentions are always good. But what I really want you to walk me through is, like in in bettering yourself, how you ended up in that situation there and what ensued. Sure. And, and I say sure. And I'm also like, oh my gosh, do we have (laughs) 10 hours, (laughs) right? It is. Yeah. So what happened for me was I, (laughs) I went to, so travel and beauty and photography were always a big motivator for me. So Mm. after watching The Secret, one of the secret teachers uh, came to town mm-hmm. um, and another one booked to come to town and then canceled at the last minute and didn't refund the tickets. Uh, oh, I will. Gosh. Okay. Yeah, I will <laughs> say. And so I made two attempts locally to just go in and, you know, put a toe in the water and see like, what is this? And, and the, the one who came to Kelowna, I went to it and I was like, yeah, not for me. Um, no, thank you. Yeah. And so then I, before sort of giving up on it, I, I went online to see what any of them were doing. And James Arthur Ray was, was putting on what appeared to be fairly sizable workshops in the States. And I saw one in um, Oakland. I really wanted to go back to San Francisco and, uh, And I've written a story about that on my blog. It was a great trip. Mm -hmm. And so I went to this initial workshop and, you know, from the relative isolation of being self-employed, always having to sort of take care of clients. And certainly I had great relationships within my work life and and that I had built. And uh, if anything, that other podcast guru kind of makes it seem like I was this sad and lonely person, which... Okay, you know, I guess that serves that storyline. But hold on a second, though. But the reality is, I mean, Laura, you're just like anybody else. Like, we have some relationships, sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. It doesn't necessarily mean you're sad or lonely. Right? Yeah. And no, and it was just more about this inner thing of, oh, here we go again. Yeah. And what what is what is next for me? And you think about what was happening there. I wouldn't call it in the mainstream, but people were becoming more aware of these non-traditional ways, um, new agey ways to to be. And I've always resonated with that kind of stuff as much as I was I was very much sort of like this buttoned up corporate person and teacher and and very traditional roles. I had this curiosity about me right from get go that well, I mean I still have 
you know, it's so gutsy to get up and move from Toronto to Kelowna, BC, because I mean, honestly, I've thought it, I've been out to BC and been like, oh, this is so beautiful. I would love to move there. Right. But for you to get up and do that, that takes guts. That's that a dog, man. Daring, <laughs> you know, and like the fact that you're even like traveling around and photographing beauty and seeing people out in nature. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you were pretty much trying to create this like life for yourself, right? And you were doing the right things. And you know what, we should come back to this after because you started a line of inquiry. But it's I love that you've said that, because it reinforces something that I literally decided this morning, yeah. um, writing my, oh, do my share. memoir. I will. So, so let's park it though. Cause I think I don't want to leave people hanging. And, and so one thing led to the next, led to the next, these workshops were really working for me, looking at life in a different way. And, you know, and, and one of the things that I don't talk about too, too much is that it wasn't just about the law of attraction. Like that's what the mainstream wants to talk about. That's what all of these productions about what happened want to talk about. It was about so many layers of spirituality and ways of being in the world and raising consciousness and, um, and looking at old esoteric concepts and how they apply in our life today. Like wisdoms that, that are like, nobody can really put a trademark on them because they are timeless and and there's so many iterations of them right laura like i mean you teach it i teach it we live it um you know they're they're concepts that have been out there for a very long time since way back the beginning of recorded time right you could say even back to plato and socrates right oh absolutely. like they're they're the same concepts like you said they're packaged differently they're called different things people like to trademark their own way of saying it but at the end of the day you're absolutely right all of these concepts as they come together in our minds raise our consciousness They do. And they resonate as truth because they are true. I was captivated by what I was learning and the impact that it was having in my life. And so I kept going to, you know, from one workshop to the next workshop. And in the meantime, I was growing this network of people, mostly from the United States and Canada, but there were people coming over from, from Europe as well. And, and, James was very, you know, quote unquote, famous in those days. He had more or less been anointed by Oprah and he had had some huge press in Fortune magazine and other publications. And so I'm going down this path and seeing that I'm able to use these concepts in a stripped down way back in the car dealership, right when people are struggling for their livelihood, like Everybody is saying, no, the economy is contracted into fear. I'm being um, taught that um, it doesn't serve me to stay in fear and what I can do about it. And you even see these concepts today. Like this is part of why I'm sharing this today because, you know, in present time, I've had a very recent example of how um, the mainstream wants us to be in fear. And it's discouraging because I'm a very trusting person and I want to trust where I'm getting my information mm-hmm. is unbiased, but that just doesn't seem to exist anymore. Yeah. So I'm going down this path, 
going from workshop to workshop to workshop. I discovered coaching, um, did a certification program um, during 2008 and early 2009. And, uh, and this whole world was being opened up to me. It was a world where I didn't have to have the very mediocre and challenging experience of being a victim of the Great Recession. And my own business was thriving. And so I kept going back. Yeah. And that seems like the most sensible thing to do. The final event was very different um, from all the other events. They, they were bigger than a workshop. You know, there were hundreds of people there and yes. uh, more familiar with these, these days where you get thousands of people packed in. Yeah. Um, but the last event was an event called Spiritual Warrior. It was a very different um, five-day program. Mm-hmm. It was, there was a lot of silence. There was a lot of introspection. There was a ton of writing. And um, the very last event of those five days was, um, and there was a lot of ceremony involved and, and it was a sweat lodge. Yeah, I'll call it that. But also I want to be respectful of um, Native Americans who object to what we did being called a sweat lodge. So, you know, so this during the sweat lodge, um, things did not go as expected. It was extremely hot. There were 50, um, more than 50 participants in this enclosed structure. And just to give an idea of, of how this particular ceremony went, um, a sweat lodge is an enclosed structure with a pit in the middle dug into the the earth and hot rocks that have been heated on a fire are brought in to the middle Mm -hmm. and then steam is added to the hot rocks. Okay. And again, I've never done another one, so I don't know how this one really um, is different, but it was intensely hot and I'll just kind of bottom line it. We were in there for a couple of hours. People were free to leave, but there was definitely pressure to stay. And okay. um, and things went off the rails. And three of the participants died as a result. Two on the day of, um, Kirby Brown and James Shore. And the woman who was beside me in the sweat lodge and in interacting with me, um, Liz Newman, she died in the hospital. Um, I think it was eight days later. Oh my gosh. So, so can you, can you tell me, like, I guess it was probably too hot for people to be in that, in that, in those quarters, maybe too many people, but what did they die of? That's a tough question. It might, it might seem obvious. Um, And, you know, they, they, I've never read the autopsies. I know what some of the arguments were in court, Yeah, but I think the, if we look at you know how things went criminally, um, it was too hot for too long. Yeah, the day of when these two individuals died, did they die during the ceremony or did they die after? Like, what was? Walk me through what the scene looked like as you were sitting there and as you started realizing that things are not right. I don't feel right. This isn't. This isn't really feeling like it should. Before. We went in. It was explained to us that it would um, feel extremely hot. And 
that we might feel like we were dying, um, but, but we wouldn't. And from my point of view, I was accustomed to hearing um, James Ray build up challenges like breaking a board or walking fire. Yeah. I was accustomed to hearing them being described in very um, elaborate and emotional ways. So when, and there's tape, it's, it's, it's out there. So when that was happening, I wasn't taking it all that seriously. Okay. Like if somebody told me I was going into something that was going to be hot enough that I would feel like I was dying, I'd probably in my not logical <laughs> mind not do <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? But yeah, you've got a situation where um, this was something he did every year. There were people there who had been in it every year. And although we didn't know it at the time, or I didn't know it at the time, there had been challenges in previous years. And so going into this situation, I have the best of expectations. My expectation is we're going to go in, there's going to be a ceremony. It's going to be lovely. It had been an arduous week. And then afterwards there would be a celebration. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the exact opposite. And it was this, sometimes I describe it as a peak to pit experience, you know, where you're expecting the best and the absolute worst happens. The bandwidth on this was massive. Like I cannot even put into words the, the level of dissonance, like, you know, just like head ringing, mind shaking, body rumbling, cognitive dissonance of what just happened. And to compound things for me, um, Liz Newman was beside me in the sweat lodge, which was a source of great comfort initially because she was on the team and she had, this was, I think her sixth or seventh sweat lodge um, with James Ray. Mm -hmm. And so any of my fears that were percolating and, you know, that inner wisdom kicking up, which it did, they were calmed down by her presence and guidance on top of the trust that I had in James and the rest of the group. Yeah. So it was really a situation that it's still today, 10 years, 11 years later, it boggles the mind. Yeah. Right. How this can happen with a group of highly intelligent, um, highly uh, ambitious, committed people. Yeah. And I do think it was like this perfect storm of, um, you know, a horrendous setup and action, but then you get a group of people who are like playing full on and, and grit and determination and whatever it takes to succeed. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of layers on this one okay. and it's tough sometimes to have the nuanced conversation about it because there's a very sort of polarized and, and, you know, his black and white way of looking at it, which was James was criminally liable. And, um, and we were, the people who died were the victims. And unfortunately for those of us who survived, the treatment has been from day one, um, you know, witless, spineless lemmings 
who somehow are an object of, of ridicule in the mainstream. How have they ridiculed the survivors of the situation? So initially, it was the media, right? So okay. this played out in full length on CNN, on Fox, on everywhere. And interestingly enough, I just yesterday released a podcast with one of my fellow um, participants, uh, Brandy Amstel, and she's describing this in my interview of her. And, and really what happened was the focus went where it rightfully should, the three people who lost their lives and their families. But there was no room in the conversation for the people who survived. Yeah. And that experience of um, would have, could have, should have. The survivor's guilt, the what we witnessed that day um, can only really, there's no simulation that could ever do it justice. And the story that I am committed to exploring is how do you heal from that? You know, because for me, it took everything that I thought about myself and stood it on its head. Yeah. Here I was a lifelong leader being cast in this role of the follower that in and of itself was traumatic for me. It caused such a crisis of identity, like all my life, it was like this gnawing, you know, I'm not particularly happy, you know, um, in and out of periods of depression. But yeah. this was like, boom, this was the thing that showed me, oh, that was nothing. <laughs> so- <laughs> I'm just talking from personal experience and people I've spoken to who are survivors of trauma. Oftentimes we do have small small experiences, right? That build our way up to the larger traumas that we experience. It's almost like the universe knows we're going to go through something really awful eventually. And it's like, you've got these little small things that are being introduced to you in your life. And that's why I always like to talk about like, what was your childhood like? What did you see? What did you feel? What was your, your student years like, you know, or your teens and your twenties like, because I feel that, whether it's intentional or not, we go through these types of things. So now you're at this at, in this sweat lodge, or you're in this program, or you've been going to these workshops. And the reality is, and I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for what I'm hearing and reading between the lines is, you were already a leader. You were already feeling great. You were doing great. Your business was doing great. You were just augmenting what you already knew. You were just augmenting your performance to be even more because at the end of the day, why not? Like if we can do it, we're almost there. We can go to the next level by doing these types of things. Why not? Right? So your intention is in the right place. You yourself are a leader in all of this, right? And every person that was there is most likely like you. They're leaders in their own right. They're just augmenting their current, um, it's kind of like that whole concept of you're always learning, right? And that's what I do as well is like, we're always learning. I, I, I get books, books recommended to me. You pick up the book, you you devour the book. You're like, this is great. This is exactly what I was looking for right now. And, and then you take that type of a concept and put it into, you know, this whole 
industry really, right? It's a, it's a billion dollar industry that is there to help us teach each other, learn, unlearn, that sort of thing. So now you're in this situation, you've experienced the severe, severe trauma. What did you do? So the first thing that I will introduce into this is that one of the things that I've learned from this experience is that every, the way that I experienced the trauma was exactly unique to me. Absolutely. So you take this hyper responsible, hyper independent person Mm -hmm. who's done all of these things that to be honest, Amy, until the last few weeks when I've been writing my memoir daily, I had really forgotten about how courageous and exciting my life was in the early 2000s. Like there's a whole other journey there to share. Yeah. That's amazing. It's, it became negated in my mind because of what happened in the sweat lodge, which was, I had a sense that something was going wrong and something was wrong with Liz. She was leaned on my shins in front of me and I raised my voice twice to James and he didn't stop things. He didn't listen. And then when I asked Liz if she needed to leave the lodge, she um, there was it was nonverbal communication, but she brushed me off. And so there was a moment there where I decided to listen to these two other leaders. And there was one leader in charge, right? The, the person who was guiding all of us. And so in that moment where I spoke up and my voice didn't have impact, for me, that was the, the core wound. Yeah. Where I didn't, I never let myself off the hook for not doing enough to change events. So how that looked for me was I threw everything out. Everything. I stopped um, building my coaching business. I went right back to my consulting. I got rid of, um, I, I stopped reading. I, I just shut it all down. No yoga, no meditation, anything that I had been just exposed to in those years. Mm-hmm. I was like, if going down this path is, leads to this, then it's all bullshit. Yeah. And I got very, very busy in my own life. You know, I, I opened. So in the meantime, I met my now husband, you know, became a full-time stepmother. We opened up uh, a gym in, in Vernon, British Columbia. We got really, really busy in the tangible world. And I left all the intangibles behind. And it wasn't until a number of years later that I turned back to it. But I will say that the physicality of um, owning a gym and being in that wellness environment where I wasn't, uh, I tried going for therapy and it just didn't work. Kelowna is a very small town. It was 
treated with notoriety. I never really, there was always more curiosity about James Arthur Ray and, and the court case and less of a desire to help me. Oh, so, really? Oh, it was I'm bad. sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was bad. Right. Yeah. Like traditional therapy has not been my avenue. That's how I had to really tap into, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. Yeah. You're going to have to learn. I had to learn self-care to the nth degree. I had to learn eventually to make my way back to meditation. And how did you do that? Can can you share with the listeners, like when you're, when you go back into survival mode, like you've kind of been in survival mode, you were coming out of it. Your, your story is so interesting to me because it's kind of like you had to, you had to experience this trauma to go back into, I guess what you could say was survival mode, right? I'm going to go back. I'm going to throw this all out, the baby and the bathwater. And I'm just going to move on and leave this all behind, right? But your perhaps your heart was still in it, right? So how did you go back? How did you make the step-by-step moves to, to, to go back to self-care and self-help? So the, the way it started was all about my body. And the people who I was able to receive help healing from were my massage therapist, my chiropractor, my acupuncturist, you know, they really helped me to keep moving the energy of it all out of my body. And they were all in my life beforehand. I've always been a big believer in proactive maintenance, Mm -hmm. you know, like treating, treating my body at least as well as I treat my car. (laughs) Right. So that's excellent. You know, so, so that was huge. And then I started to, um, being in the gym that we opened, I started to develop a taste for wanting to be more fit myself. And I took up long distance running, which I've got a long and hilarious relationship with running. I run, um, I do not run well. (laughs) We'll just put it that way for now. (laughs) I don't think I don't run well. Really? I don't even, I don't think, I also tell people, I, I, I don't know if it's a natural, uh, <laughs> it's natural for humans to run like that, but you know, but, but what it was, was meditative. It is right. Absolutely. So there's the, the, it was grounding and it was meditating. So, so while my, you know, it was almost like I was out of body, right. Just the shock of, of it all. Yeah. It really helped me to connect back in and be more grounded and the hours of time that I spent um, pounding the, the pavement in Peachland, BC, which is where we would go to run, um, they, they're in the hundreds, if not thousands. And I would plod along. And while I was, this was very good for my body, um, it was also very good for my mind. Excellent. And as I was going doing that and, and progressively becoming like I did. Okay. I ran half a dozen or so half marathons. So, um, but I also started to notice the correlation of where my mind was at would start to dictate how my run went. Yeah. And so it's like, I backed into this mindset of, um, you know, inner connection and, finding inner peace through my body. And it's still an approach that I I very much use today. I I do meditate 
most days. I won't claim every day, but mm. close to every day. And um, and then I've maintained either a yoga practice. Um, of late, um, yoga has been my thing until the pandemic um, yeah. disrupted it. Yeah. But um, but yeah, the the physical presence in my body has been very very healing to me. And then by very selectively starting to surround myself again with, um, you know, different uh, bodies of knowledge and and learning. Mm-hmm. So I now prefer to get my influences very separately. Um, what James Arthur Ray was 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 teaching was he was there was a visual I remember at the time where he was incorporating the success and the motivation and the inspiration and the business uh, with spirituality. Yeah. And now I, for me, I prefer to um, take them separately, you know, go to one kind of environment for the practicalities of business and a very separate environment for um continuing to develop spiritually and I see them and it's up to me to integrate it for myself. Excellent. Excellent. I want to just quickly, before we end our episode today, I want to go back to something you were going to talk about that happened to you just this morning. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, this summer has been, oh gosh, if I had ever thought that I would be spending so much time looking at my past in the middle of a pandemic, you, you would have, like, I've been saying for years that I want to write a book Yeah, and I committed to it at the beginning of uh, 2020 before we, we knew what 2020 was going to be like. Yeah. And so I've been writing almost every day. And so that has had me looking at, you know, the different stories within the story and in the meantime, in July, this guru, this podcast called Guru, The Dark Side of Enlightenment was released. And it's all about the events in Sedona and uh, the trial. And I'm, I'm a major um, figure in this podcast that um, I imagine that millions of people have heard um, my voice uh, telling the details of that story. Mm-hmm. And and so as I'm trying to figure out, well, where does the book begin? Where does the book end? What's the point? <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. what's the point? <laughs> Why? Yes. You know, like, yes. I've been grappling with this because it all seems, to me, it's my life. So it seems boring and, and air quotes, normal. Yeah. So much of it is not normal. Yeah. But I this morning I was like, all right, I got to spend some time here and really think about this. And what I has been gnawing at me is that that entire journey of being the single woman who at the age of 38 packed everything up with my dog, yeah, to a moving van and my CRV and drove across the country in search of this creative lifestyle where I could take pictures and write and, and do and make my business. Um, to me, that's a story worth telling versus 
the entire, like being defined by the horrendous events in Sedona. And so now I'm starting to look at it within the larger context of my life and realizing that I have been, I've kind of bought into the narrative that some of these other projects and people are advancing, Mm -hmm. which is to let the events of the Sedona Sweat Lodge define who I am. I had forgotten parts of me. And in doing that, it's like this re-victimizing has been happening. It's been a summer of like, I've been quiet on social these last few weeks as I'm digesting the context that our story has been put in once again and realizing that if any, if I, if a narrative, if it's going to be told the way I want to tell it, it's going to, it's up to me. It is. No one else is going to do it the way that I do it. And showing the, the journey that happened years before that is part of the bigger story. And it's part of who you are, Laura. And, and so what I want to also share with the listeners is that Laura and I met through one of our mutual friend, Laura. And so when I spoke to Laura the first time, I, I saw you as that person from beginning to today. Right. And that's what I hope that this podcast episode was able to do for you because you are more than the events that happened to you. Right. You were somebody before and quite a remarkable person at that. And you are absolutely remarkable thereafter. And so I love that you are thriving and you are finding that part of yourself again. Right. Because you, like many of us, we sometimes give our own stories to somebody else to tell, right? Whether we want to or we don't. It's, it's Sometimes it's not even our choice, but we choose for it to infiltrate who we become. And that's why we talk very much on this podcast about your journey is your journey and your declaration of your honest truth is your own. And I love also what you said about the perspective of what you experienced in that traumatic event and thereafter is only yours, right? You're in a room of 50 people, but what you saw, what you heard, what you felt is your own, right? And that's something that you can always say to anybody. You are who you are. The way that you have worked since this this event happened to you and your survival of it, as well as thriving and going back to your coaching business, which I want you to talk about in a moment as well, is a testament to who you are, Laura. And that's just amazing. You know, I know that um, you explained to me that, and just like my podcast, this podcast is heard all over the world, and it's and it's heard by people who have have varying levels of access to support for their own challenges. And listening to you, and even listening to myself, if I were to leave people with one of many of the lessons that I've had is just to not give up on yourself that it can be, it's, it's a long journey sometimes healing. And, and, you know, my situation is complicated because it's the intersection of many lives in this one event. Yeah. And so 
it's complicated and it's messy, but it may not be any more complicated and messy than, than a divorce, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, or, Absolutely. or a physical trauma that happens to someone. And it really is. If I, if I look back on what defines me beyond this, you know, responsible little leader, mm. um, it's relentless. Absolutely. I am relentless in my pursuit of feeling better. And that has served me and it's taught me that it has to come from inside of you, that you'll meet people along the way who are helpful and who are quite frankly useless. Yeah. But you move forward just the same because that's you discerning that who's helpful and who's useless. And no, I don't want that. Yes. I want more of this. And as for the bigger story of, of the self-help and how that can go so horribly wrong, it is a cautionary tale. And I think it's one that's worth sharing because um, I know that these things are being perpetuated still today. And you know, self-help is an unregulated industry mm-hmm. where there's no recourse. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about James Arthur Ray. I'm talking about practitioners who are in it for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make a buck. Yeah. And so that's where you don't end up with, um, say what I will about my experience of traditional therapy. At least there's credentials. At least there's somewhere to go with Oh yeah, there's feedback. regulations, there's, you know, yeah. And there's somewhere so, to go to complain about the person if they're not doing the job they're supposed to be doing, right? If you absolutely. really want to take that avenue. Yeah. So it's a, I want to say this as encouragement. It comes down to everything you need is inside of you and you can keep peeling back the layers and, and you'll meet other people on your journey. And some of them will have an awful lot to teach you, but only you can do you. And, and I love and it. that is, oh, I guess that's what I have to give at this point of my story. And what I was saying, like, what's the point? That's the point. We can, I, I love being a learner and I love being a seeker and I love being a teacher, but at the end of the day, it's what happens in my mind and in my body that I have the influence over. And so, especially right now with the world, the way it is, it's, it's really um, about self-governing and doing things that make you feel good and feel better and set you up for resilience and strength and um and a sense of hope even when things are really really challenging i love that never give up on yourself i love that i love that and before we close out i want to ask you the question i always ask everyone is there anybody who has not survived that you want to dedicate this podcast episode to i want to dedicate it to um Kirby and James and Liz, who were in the sweat lodge that day. And, uh, and, you know, I say their names with tears in my eyes, because I know it, it could have, it could have been me. Yeah. And so um, I don't usually get emotional about this, but we are where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've, I'm ready to put down the burden of responsibility of feeling bad for surviving and to tell the story, the whole story, so that others not only avoid similar pain, because I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but also to have a sense of, of hope and that there is life after extreme challenge. And I think we can all connect with that right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And we hope to talk to you again in the future. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories. Today's episode was brought to you by 15minutesaday.ca. We look forward to hearing from you again. Feel free to leave comments and suggestions in the message area below or to reach out to our team if you feel that you are a good candidate for appearing on Calm After the Storm.